0: Welcome to the podcast, episode 60. Can you believe it's been 60 times that we've done this? Man. So I want to um, uh, circle back around and and address something we've talked a little bit about before. I want to talk about uh, the Revoice Conference, but not really uh, talking about the Revoice Conference uh, directly. I want to talk about one aspect of uh, the argumentation that people use in defense of things like Revoice. So, and, and it, this is the one argument that really throws a lot of um, uh, se- good Christian people who, who know that something's wrong with the argument, but they're not quite sure what. So, uh, and it has to do with whether temptation is sin. The Bible tells us explicitly that uh, our Lord was tempted, uh, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We're told that he was tempted three times there. We're told in the book of Hebrews that he was tempted in all points like, like as we are, yet without sin. So we know that when Adam was created without sin in the garden, he was sinless, and yet obviously he could be tempted. So sinlessness can precede temptation. It's possible for, for temptation to come at you from the outside. So uh, we, living in our fallen condition, are tempted by the world the flesh, and the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, two of those are from outside us. The world is outside us, and the devil is outside us. The flesh is not outside us. Um, the flesh is something we, uh, the flesh is the gum on our shoe. The flesh goes around with us. Adam, when he was tempted, was tempted by the world and was tempted by the devil. He was not tempted by the flesh, except insofar as um, the g- good and godly appetites of the flesh could be put in a wrong context and, and um, made occasions for sin. So, we're told that the, uh, the fruit was delightful to look upon. And we're told that the fruit was good to eat um, and, and apparently looked like it was good to eat. So, those, those were things that appealed to Adam's unfallen flesh. Um, the delightfulness the of the fruit appealed to his unfallen, fresh flesh. Also, incidentally, it's um, it appears that uh, what Adam was being tempted to become was worldly. So, in in First John, it says, "Love not the world or the things in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life." Well, those three things map onto the three aspects of. Um, uh, Our first parents temptation the lust of the flesh the the uh, fruit was good to eat lust of the eyes it was delightful to look upon and uh, and the pride of life it was able to make make them wise so Adam was being tempted to be become worldly and he was tempted by the by what was out in the world not a fallen world but out in the world and he was tempted by the devil who arranged these elements of the world and God's and God also helped arrange the this element of the world by prohibiting that tree so Satan took the prohibition took the attractiveness of the the fruit and the those aspects of Adam's body that would answer to the attractiveness of the fruit and presented him with the temptation all right so Adam sinned Without having had a sin nature prior to the sin, Jesus was tempted, and he was genuinely tempted. But he was genu- genuinely tempted without having a sin nature. He never had any problem uh, with uh, sin internally, and because Jesus never had problem with sin internally, um, and he was genuinely tempted, he said he was. Le- it says he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That means it must be possible for for a sinless one, to uh, be actually truly tempted. Now, um, uh, one side comment: Some people wonder, well, could Jesus could Jesus have sinned, and was it a genuine temptation if he couldn't sin? If it was not possible for Jesus to sin, then how was it a real uh, temptation? Um, well, we define sin, and we we define sin by the Bible. We don't define sin by some Pelagian assumption of, well, if I couldn't do the opposite, if I couldn't, if I don't have a genuine choice to go left or right, then it's not truly a temptation. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted, and so we know he was tempted. The Bible also teaches that um, it, by giving us prophecies in the Old Testament that he will see um, uh, the. In Isaiah, where uh, he will he will see the fruit of his um, victory and be satisfied. I forget the first part of that phrase, but in Isaiah 53, he will he will see and he will be satisfied. We know that the righteous servant will be raised from the dead in vindication, and these words were prophesied centuries before they actually happened. So we know that Jesus was not going to fall and yet he really was tempted. I'd like to, I'd like to compare it to uh, Christ's bones. Uh, were Christ's bones breakable? Well, they were breakable in the sense that they were made just like your bones and my bones are. Uh, they were breakable in that they were made of the same substance, the same material that ours are. Uh, Jesus' bones were not unbreakable in the sense that they were made of stainless steel. No, Jesus' bones uh, were breakable, but the Word of God said that his bones wouldn't be broken, and the Word of God cannot be broken. So the the Scriptures are unbreakable. Christ's bones were breakable. But to say that Christ's bones are breakable doesn't mean that they must break. It it means that they could break under certain circumstances. Uh, Christ was temptable in the same way. We knew that Christ was going to withstand all his temptations, and we and we knew that before he was born. Um, but the temptation was a true temptation; he experienced it as a true temptation. Now, our temptations are have an extra element: the flesh. We have to deal with remaining sin. We have to deal with the way the world uh, around us. Is the way the world around us actually is, and the history of our race, and and the, our own uh, previous track record of sinning. So, when we, um, so for example, Jesus, uh, it says in in uh, Hebrews that he was tempted in all points like as we are, but he was not tempted in those areas where uh, he, the prerequisite to the temptation is a long career of previous sinning. So, um, he was not, Jesus was never tempted to gamble away his paycheck, um, because he was trying to get rich quickly, get a bunch of money to make up for the money he embezzled from the shop where he was working. Um, he, he, Jesus wasn't tempted with any of the downstream temptations, um, he was not tempted, tempted the way someone who's been a drunkard for twenty years is tempted to take another drink. Uh, Jesus was tempted in all the basic human temptations, but he was not tempted in the ways that presuppose a prior um, record of sinning, which means that Jesus was not tempted. In he he was tempted with sexual temptation. Uh, and we know that because he was tempted in all points like as we are. But he was not tempted in various perversions that, had, that can only arise if there's previous brokenness. So um, he, he could be tempted in all the ways that Adam could be tempted. I don't believe he could be tempted in the ways that a dissolute rebel who's been sinning for 50 years could be tempted. One other thing before, uh, before leaving this point, uh, uh, I, w- I want to mention three levels of mortification. And this, be- this is because uh, the, uh, the, all the discussion that s- swirls around the Revoice conference has been suspiciously light on the topic of mortification. Mortification simply means uh, putting sin to death. What are the three levels of mortification? number one is when someone becomes a christian all who all who belong to christ jesus it says in galatians have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires so um, and do you not know romans 6 that if we are baptized into christ we are baptized into his death uh, becoming a christian is a mortification and i compare that to uh, god taking your weed patch and rototilling a re- big rectangle in the middle of the weed patch, and that brown rectangle is now garden. God plows under all the weeds. That's a mortification, and this patch of dirt is a garden now. The second kind of mortification is something that is done by uh, backslidden Christians. Um, Paul says in Galatians 3 uh, that we are to mortify our members which are on the earth, and then he gives a list of those members, and there's a, it's a list of pretty gnarly sins, but, you know. So go, going back to the image of the garden, these are three these are Canadian thistle uh, plants that are three feet high. You went away for your vacation, forgot to get somebody to water and um, and tend your garden. You come back, and the uh, the Canadian thistle are taller than the cor- taller than the corn. So so what do you do? you mortify your members which are on the earth. And the tense that is used there, it's an aorist imperative, indicates an over-and-done action. It's an over-and-done action. So you, you mortify uh, your members which are on the earth, you pull up the Canadian thistle, you make a pile of them um, next to the garden, and then you set them all on fire. You, you burn them all. That's an over-and-done mortification. Uh, the third kind of mortification is Romans 8. The Spirit leads us in putting to death the misdeeds of the body. So we mortify the deeds of the body. Uh, But there, it's a continuous, the tense is continuous, it's ongoing. Uh, This is more like a gardener who gets up every morning at 5 a.m. to go out to weed his garden. and, And in the history of the world, there has never been a gardener who went out in the early morning to weed his garden where he didn't find something. Uh, There's always a weed. Now it may be the size of your thumbnail; it may be uh, pretty small, but that thing that's the size of your thumbnail is a little tiny Canadian thistle. It's easy to pull up at that point, but it's still mortification. And and that's why uh, uh, John Owen uh, once said, "He should not think he makes any progress in godliness who walks not daily over the bellies of his own lusts." It's all mortification. So the book I'd like to review for this episode of the podcast, which is episode 60, and again, good to have you with us, is a book um, by a gent named Bloom, and it's called Against Empathy. Against Empathy. Uh, now, this is not a Christian book. Um, uh, the the fellow is a psychologist, and he uh, nevertheless has a lot of interesting Things to say, and I found I, I found the book uh, fascinating, and and the reason I find it I found it fascinating and very helpful is that we live in a time when empathy is considered by many people to be the fundamental moral virtue, uh, and here's a guy writing against empathy. Well, uh, th- think of it this way: um, I, I believe, and the author believes, that it's our responsibility to be. Compassionate, we should be tender-hearted and compassionate to people who are in trouble, but uh, there's a difference between compassion and empathy. Uh, what empathy is, the way he's defining it, is uh, empathy is where uh, there is a total identification. If you, if you empathize with someone, you are you don't just feel sorry for them, or you it's more than your heart going out to them. Rather, when you empathize with them, when you identify with Uh, them completely. Their pain is your pain. Their hurt is your hurt. You're in it with them. You're all in. So um, if I could use my, this is not his illustration, but if I could use my own illustration, uh, sympathy is when you see someone drowning, uh, you you see someone drowning in the river, you keep your both feet on the bank and you pick up a life preserver with uh, a rope tied to it and you throw it out to them and you haul them in and they're in the water they're the one drowning and you pull them out because you're not the one drowning that you're you sympathize with them you don't empathize empathy is more like seeing the person drowning and you go headlong in with them and start to drown right alongside side them it's and what happens if you when you empathize the first thing you lose is the kind of objective detachment that you need in order to keep from making the situation far worse. So, if you completely identify with someone and you're all in the instant you hear their story, um, you gone are all the notions of um, due diligence and fact checking. And is this is this story true? If you've empath if you've empathized with them, you don't really care if the story is true. And because we live in a therapeutic culture, because we live in a time where people feel that it's their moral obligation to identify with you if you come to them with a, with a tale of woe, um, you don't need to do any fact-checking. They're on your side instantaneously. Uh, there are a number of good arguments against uh, giving way to empathy. Uh, uh, this, uh, this fellow Bloom does a good job in carefully defining his terms, laying out uh, different um, scenarios, and uh, so, uh, you know, by everywhere, not written from a believing perspective, not a Christian book, but nevertheless, I think a, uh, a valuable book. So we come, episode uh, 60 in a podcast, to Hamartiology. And to remind you, uh, we're working through all the different Greek words for various sins, and we've come to the word for sin itself. The uh, verb for sinning is hamartano, and hamartia is the word for sin. And we're taking it over a number of weeks because there are so many um, occasions of uh, these words. In 1 Peter, the verb hamartano is used once and is rendered as for your faults in 2.20. If we are chastised for our own faults and not for the sake of Christ, then what spiritual benefit is found in that? In his use use of the word for sin, Peter has a strong emphasis on the penal penal substitution of Christ for sinners. Christ Himself did no sin; that's in uh, 2:22, and was therefore not suffering for His own fault. He, in his own person, bore our sins in his own body, so that we, now dead to sins, might live to righteousness. Verse 24. This is yet another clear statement of the great exchange. Christ, who had no sin, took ours, and we, who had no righteousness, took his. Christ suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. That's in 1 Peter 3.18. On the foundation of this glorious justification, we may build a strong doctrine of sanctification. Because Christ has died, the one who suffers in his flesh ceases from sin, um, for one So, if uh, it's important to emphasize that the exchange has to happen first. It, uh, mere suffering does not purge sin away, although many non-believers think that it does. They think they've suffered for their sins. Rather... We see that Christ suffered for our sins. He offers his righteousness to us. We take, uh, we take his righteousness. He, we offer our sin to him. He takes it. Because of that great exchange, we are forgiven, and we are set free to be able to follow him. And as we follow him, we suffer in the flesh and and, as a consequence, cease from sin for one. And above all, of course, we are to have fervent charity because charity covers a multitude of sins. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.